Welcome to the Vandenack Weaver Legal Visionaries podcast, brought to you by Interactive Legal. Here's your host, Mary Vandenack. Welcome to today's episode of Legal Visionaries, a weekly podcast discussing updated legal news, as well as evolving methods of providing legal service. I'm Mary Vandenack, founder and CEO of Vandenack Weaver LLC. I will be your host as we talk to experts from around the country about legal and tax issues, trusts and estates, business succession and exit planning, law practice technology, management and leadership, and well-being. First, I want to thank our sponsors, Interactive Legal, Foster Group, Veterans Victory Housing and Business Centers, and Carson Private Client. Here's a message from Interactive Legal. Technology has become an essential part of our daily lives. However, not all fields have embraced technology. Lawyers, especially estate planning attorneys, need to stay up to date with specific laws and any issues affecting taxes and wealth preservation. Implementing an automated drafting system can help lawyers spend more time with their clients and less time doing back office tasks. Estate planners and law professionals turn to Interactive Legal as their main resource for the latest planning strategies. Interactive Legal provides the most comprehensive productivity system on the market with an easy-to-use document drafting system, extensive continuing education, thought-provoking discussion forums, and more. With Interactive Legal, attorneys get to spend more time with their clients. It's time to connect, collaborate, and create. To learn more about Interactive Legal, visit interactivelegal.com. Wealth planning focuses on liquidity management and charges you a fee based on a percentage of your assets. But entrepreneurs typically invest in their business, resulting in light liquidity. That requires a unique strategy. At Carson Private Client, we provide a proactive and holistic strategy for building and protecting your wealth. Our mission is to alleviate the stresses and the burdens of coordinating all of those financial strategies. Carson Private Client will work with your current team of advisors to customize a strategy that manages all aspects of your life and wealth, giving you back the time to focus on what matters most. Complex needs require sophisticated solutions. Reach out to our office at 402-779-8989 to schedule your consultation. Investment advisory services offered through CWM LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor. On today's episode, my guest is Mitchell Hockenberry. Mitchell is a career military man, first enlisting in the Marine Corps and later being commissioned in the Army as an infantry officer. He has multiple combat tours as an infantry platoon leader during the surge of Iraq and later as an infantry company commander where he led the last fighting force out of Iraq in December 2011. He has been awarded numerous medals and badges. During his military career, he worked with hundreds of soldiers to improve their financial well-being. Today, he helps others achieve their financial goals. His undergraduate degrees are in finance and banking, and he holds an MBA, is a certified financial planner practitioner, a retirement income certified professional, and a registered social security analyst. Mitchell and I did a previous episode where we talked about a book he's written called Tactical Influence. And in that book, he shared some of his experiences in the service. 
and really appreciate that you did that. And it's a really interesting story. And we apply those principles to professionals and to people generally. Today, we're going to talk about another book he's written. And that book is, If I Had Only Known About Money Then, Wisdom That Would Have Saved a Million Dollars. Thanks for joining me again today, Mitchell. No problem. Thanks for having me. This is, this is great to be back. So I love the title of your book. It's quite intriguing. It does suggest that there are significant financial lessons to be learned. Can you start by just talking about what inspired you to write this book and maybe share some of the key lessons that you discuss in the book? Yeah, no problem. Um, uh, Ron Howard, very famous uh, director, has a, a best friend and a producer that does all of his movies named Brian Grazer. And he had written this book called The Curious Mind, The Secret to a Bigger Life. And in it, what he talks about is just having what he calls curiosity conversations. And, and you can imagine this guy has a Rolodex of anybody that he wants to talk to, like literally anybody will talk to him. But back in the day when he first started out, he was smart enough to say, I'm going to go find people that are, are kind of at the top of their game. And I'm just going to say, hey, can I get 15 minutes of your time? And I want to know what the, the biggest obstacle was for you. Clearly, you're successful. What was the obstacle that you overcame? And, and to his surprise, everybody would be like, yeah, let's, people like to talk about themselves. And so I was reading it and I was like, oh man, I wish I had done this when I was 20 because I was 40 at the time. And I, here I was still active duty army and planning for my post army life, which was about six years out. And so I had this 10 year plan that I was working and it dawned on me that, you know what, I could go find somebody that's 60 years old at the top of their game. I'm, I'm a financial planner and I got a little boutique firm. And so I was like, I'm going to go find these other people that are at the top of their game and ask them what they wish they knew at, at 40 years of age. And now it's like, I have the answer to the test. And to my surprise, everybody I asked, I mean, it was like easy to get, to get in to see anybody. And so, um, it was just really fun because you start just building up a network and you just start really learning things about other people, which helps you to learn things about yourself. I had so much fun with it that I was like, well, I need to pay this back. So I need to be able to do something for the 20-year-olds that are out there. And I had plenty of financial mistakes. I've done every one of the things that you could do that are wrong. And so I thought, I'll just write a book. And so that's what I did. And one of the key topics you talk about, and this is one of my favorite, and it's savings rates being a really important metric. Can you talk about why this is so important and perhaps share one example of how this metric could have made a difference. And I just have yeah. to share with you, because you talk about this in the book, my brother is you know, a financial guy, and he's out of Chicago. And he's my brother, my son goes to him for advice. And my brother said, if you do nothing else this week, open up account and put $100 into your savings right. account and right. don't touch it. Right. No, that's it. So I'm really excited about this. To, to this topic to me is like... It's, it's gold. It's the thing that is the secret that once I explain it is obvious, but it's the secret to doing things on your terms. And that is the savings rate is the most important thing that there is. Most people on average are doing like 5.7%, I think is what they're saving of the, of the money that they make. They're saving about 5.7% of it. And most financial advisors or professionals, your brother and even myself included, will say, hey, you need to save like 10 to 15%. That's what you ought to be going for. And I would argue and wish I would have known when I was 20, save 50%. Because if you save 50%, and to give you just a really quick, like we could do the math, but if you made 10% on your money, which isn't that difficult to do, especially as a 20-year-old, 
if you save 50% of every dollar that you make, you make 10%, in 12 years, you can retire. You're financially independent because you can now live off of what that 50% remaining is. In fact, you give yourself a raise because of taxes. You're not taking the taxes out if you're doing in a taxable account. So I think the secret sauce is the savings rate. And there are absolute super savers out there. I run across them all the time. And what I help people with is they're always asking me, like, when can I get to retirement? When can I be at that point when I can just tell them to take this job and shove it, so to speak? And the answer is it depends on how much you're saving. And if I can get a hold of people younger and earlier, that's what I want to do is to show them, like, there is another way. Think beyond the 10 to 15%. Think 30, 40, 50. Can you get to 60? That'd be awesome. And I've seen people do it. And I'm just going to say, as somebody who was an early saver, that you get to a point where you could retire early if you wanted to, but then choosing to work is a whole different story than having to work. You might choose to actually retire early, or you might be fortunate to have a business that you love and be able to structure it exactly how you want to because you're not as pressed for the dollars. Exactly. Well, it's clear that awareness of financial matters is crucial. I think some people want to close their eyes and just not look. I've talked to people at times that are like, well, I don't really know. Like, do you have a budget? What's a budget? How do you spell that type of thing? So your book covers a broad range. How do you suggest readers prioritize? Because if you can kind of get them at least taking a step. So that's like my brother saying to my son, just put $100 away this week and then Mm -hmm. $110 next week, Right. right? Right. So I've, 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 I think some of your listeners may have, or you are aware of when someone says, if you show me your calendar, I can tell what your priorities are. I would also argue when I see someone's credit card statements or their checking account statements, I can tell you what their priorities are. And it may not, and they, they, as a matter of fact, on every one of my financial plans, I literally write like, what, what is money important for? Or why is money important to me? It depends on how they like to word it. And then we write that out on the top. That becomes like the mantra to the financial plan. And it's because you're exactly right. There's such a disconnect with what people think is important, but then they go and spend money on, you know, the Starbucks every day and sometimes three times a day. And so there's that part of it. So I think everything comes down to a spending plan or a budget, whatever you want to call it. And because even with the people I'm working with, they'll come to me and be like, well, you know what? I'm not going to retire at 65. Can I do it like next year? And the answer is, let's go to the spending plan and look. Can we get a second home? Can we buy the RV and it's 150K and it's like, but it's also gas and it's insurance and it's the overnight stays some places that, you know, charge you for the nightly rental. All that stuff comes down to, let's go take a look at the spending plan. And there's examples all the time of people that are doing it right, like the janitor that, that dies with, you know, 1.2 million that he leaves to the high school. And everybody's like, I had no idea he had that down to I have people that I've worked with that are dual income physicians that are spending $50,000 a year more than what they're bringing in. And if you were to put that on the front page of the Omaha World Herald or the New York Times or Wall Street Journal, they would be devastated that people knew that even though they're making this huge amount of money because the rest of the world would go, oh my gosh, like how can you possibly do that? Like how could you, it's a spending plan. We are going to take a brief break from our episode for a word from one of our sponsors. If you had a dollar for every financial advisor that just wanted your money, your financial future would already be secure. At Foster Group, our team is different. One whose focus is on you and your dreams. 
Together, we'll create a strategy that helps you get there, wherever there is for you. Foster Group, your financial life, truly cared for. Connect with us at fostergrp.com. Foster Group's written disclosure brochure, as set forth in Part 2A of Form ADV, discusses advisory services and fees, is available at www.fostergrp.com. Okay, let's continue our episode. So financial literacy is a journey. Your book talks a lot about the journey. What guidance might you offer to readers on the legal issues who don't like our legal jargon. Yeah, I don't like jargon at all. I think <laughs> jargon sometimes is just used to save one's job and their, or their own profession. Um, the financial industry is the worst. I mean, insurancers, insurance, insurance places are the worst, I think, are most guilty about it. Um, but what I would say is that most people are just embarrassed not to know the answer. So you use, we, use, we use this jargon thing, and I would say it, it, it's, it's, it's shocking to me. Like, it's it takes a lot of courage for someone to come to an attorney, I think. I think you've got, you know, back in the day, right, when you opened up the phone book and it was like the thickest part of the entire phone book was the attorney section, right? And it was like, how do I, is it the person on the billboard that I need to be talking to? Or is it like my uncle Frank worked with somebody and he says they're good and so I'm just going to go that way. I think there's a lot of courage. I mean, even I, I, I think of myself as fairly intelligent. Even I think it would be like difficult to figure out where to go to find somebody that's good unless I'm networking through and I trust the person that's used it and seeing the outcome that comes. So I think the jargon that's used, I think the way we elevate certain people within the profession and it's how the profession will talk to the, the, the consumer in that too, I think goes a long ways. And so I just think it's, it's, it's try to talk without the jargon. Try to just be respectful as though it's like your grandmother and, and, and you're going to like explain it. As I call it, you remember I've got the, the Army background, so you got a Barney style to me because I'm an infantryman, right? So you got to like talk in Barney language, then I'll understand it. And people don't think less of you when you can do that. In fact, I would say that it takes more intelligence to be able to take these concepts that you know really well and your listeners know really well, and if you can Barney-style them, then that means you know this stuff like the back of your hand. So I was taught that the real art of what I do, especially when I was a young lawyer and talking to very successful business people who might not want me, the you know new face right. at the table, to know that they didn't understand what I was talking about was to make the complex simple. And I think mm. that's what you're saying. Yeah. And if you're not great at that today, there's a great tool out there called chat GPT <laughs> and there's going to be other artificial intelligence models. Right. But I take some of my associates memo who still write law review articles, put them in chat GPT and say, can you please explain this to a fourth grader? Mm. And that makes a big Brilliant. difference. And yeah, it does a good job actually. Yeah. So it's often said that ignorance of the law is no excuse, especially when it comes to finances. And so your book caters to a, a wide audience. Does it resonate with young adults starting their careers? I and think how so. about those approaching retirement? Oh yeah, for sure. So my my bread and butter are people are are retirees or early retirees. Um, but this book is literally written for the high school graduate going into workforce or the college graduate going into the profession for the first time. That's, that's, that's what it is. I actually literally say it's the 22 year old Mitch wish he knew this and kind of go through it, but I don't think it really matters your age or your stage in life. 
Um, I do get a lot of older folks that say, boy, I really wish I would have known this back then. I wish someone taught me this. I wish someone would have told me this. Um, but I have, a, you know, a lot of large percentage of my clients are high net worth people. They're the ones that can afford you, right? And lots of them have issues with either overspending or not spending enough. A lot of them wish that their kids or grandkids took the time value of money. And what I would also call that is a time value of life more seriously. Um, but compounding is, is, you know, as they say, the eighth wonder of the world. Um, yeah, this, this thing could, this reaches across all generations. So are there any misconceptions or myths that you frequently encounter when you're discussing financial matters? And could you talk about those? Yeah, I think it's probably the keeping up with the Jones effect. I think the, um, if I drive this kind of car, then that means I've kind of made it and I'm, I'm more successful than somebody else. Or if I have this particular handbag that, that signals to other people that I'm successful. Um, I, I think those are kind of the, the first myths. The other myth would be, this is kind of funny because it's opposite ends of a spectrum, is I can retire even though I don't have enough. That is a myth just because I've reached the age of 65, for instance. Um, but then on the other end, I get a lot of people that they just, you know, they may have like eight to $12 million and they're like, I don't know if I can do this. And when we find the spending plan, I'm like, you're only spending $80,000 a year. Of course you can. And they're still scared to do it or they get there and they just freeze in inactivity because they've spent their entire life accumulating the money and now they don't know how to use it and spend it and get and watch it go down. They think that that's, you know, something to be afraid of. I think there's a similarity in the relationships people have with money as they have to food. And oh, so a lot sure. of people have either undereat or overeat or constantly on a diet. I was driving down a street the other day and noticed like 20 different signs on diet plans. And we were getting ready for this podcast. And I had read this question. I'm like, it's somewhat similar, right? Mm -hmm. And so well, that kind of comes to the emotional aspect right. of financial decision making and I think the statistic I've heard is that emotions are five times more powerful than the intellect. Hmm. So can you talk about how the emotions do impact our financial choices? Yeah, for sure. Um, that, is at, that is spot on. I've seen, I, I mean, that's what I work on a weekly basis. I'm seeing this stuff. Um, so yes, I mean, first of all, the emotional spending, like just how you're feeling about something can get you to eat more, right? And some people, it has the opposite effect. They just won't eat. When I first went to, when I, when I went back to Iraq after my very first thing, which listeners can listen to the last podcast to hear some of it, I didn't eat. I was in charge of, I, have, I was a company commander. I had 158 people and I lost 45 pounds because I just, the stress was crushing me. And I didn't feel like I could get away from the radio to go get a meal at the chow hall because I would miss something and someone would die or something would need it and whatever it may be. That absolutely happens. It also happens with money as well. I wrote a little ebook about how calories and dollars are the same. And so absolutely um, that can happen, but it can also lead to getting too much stuff. I mean, I, I, as, as I drive around, I mean, just as I was coming here, I'm, there's, a, there's a Milt stealth storage and I'm like, how many, how many, oh, Uncle Milt, he must own a lot of stealth storages because I see him all around the city. And if you ever looked at the publicly traded stocks on these storage units, it's because the emotional thing of stuff takes over and then it becomes like, when is it enough? And it's, it's just crazy. And so I could give examples, but I don't want to, you know, bog us down. But I would just say that absolutely emotions play a bigger role than the math. The math is actually really easy. 
And I would just say that as somebody who's worked with a lot of storage facilities, the economics of storage facilities are pretty amazing. Yes. And then yes. as somebody who works a lot with, you know, trusted estate administration, and it's often hugely painful for the family members to mm. go through all of the stuff. Mm-hmm. And so that's a, an interesting comparison in terms of we tend to. And don't you sometimes see as people, and I think you could just said it earlier, that you see different spending styles, people accumulate and still don't even spend an mm-hmm. amount they could and vice versa. For sure. Well, let's talk about the vision of you know, what were you hoping, what kind of societal impact were you hoping to have when you wrote this book? Yeah, I think it really comes down to almost all personal finance books have the same stuff in it, right? And it always comes down to the budget. It's always that and then invest wisely, spend less than you make. Um, but I'm like, well, how does it land with the reader? And a lot of times the publishers are making you fill a certain number of pages. There's a whole bunch of dynamics going in these books. I looked at it and I was just like, hey, how, how can I get this thing written in the least amount of words possible so that it actually lands with the reader and make it, you know, um, you know, have meaning to them. And so I did it through the lens of, I made this mistake, but I wish I knew whatever, maybe it's about spending, investing, whatever. And I wanted to do it so that a high schooler could understand it and implement it. And so I just think that those other books are written more to impress other authors or just the community of financial professionals so that they don't get questioned versus how do you actually get somebody to act on it? And I think by coming with humility and saying, here's the mistakes that I made, I could have retired eight years ago had I not done these things, then I think that helps maybe to land for the young reader. And I just have to share with you a note that I made while we were doing this podcast, because it's going to be something I'm going to do probably over the weekend. But I was thinking, well, maybe you should retitle this book. If you want to understand your financial priorities, review your credit card statements. And what I was thinking as you were talking about that is that as we've gone more electronic, it's really easy just to swipe the card as opposed to looking at, I I talked to even some of my young associates who like, yeah, I just rely on whatever's in my checking and balance. I've never balanced my checking, but how do you know what you spend it on? Right. And and so that's, I'm actually going to do that tonight. Well, let's talk about technology, which has been rapidly changing the financial landscape. Mm -hmm. Do you see, do you think that the emerging technologies such as blockchain and the cryptocurrencies are going to influence the legal and financial advice landscape? Yeah, well, I I do think they will. I I do think they will. And first of all, let me just say something about what you just said too on on the technology as it relates to finances. Amazon is who Amazon is because they have as much as they could eliminated friction between the buy like between the the customer and them and what i mean by that is it's moved all it, first it was the free shipping right everybody was worried when they first i mean i was like one of the first people when amazon was just a bookstore in 1999 i was buying my college books on there and it was a long slog as you waited for that thing to get to you and so they then got rid of the whole shipping thing then they moved it into we're going to store your credit card which was crazy back in that day but it got all the way down to now, it's just one click and it's yours. And, and even today, you can just walk into a, a, a shop owned by Amazon and walk out and you don't even have to like do anything. Zero friction other than you being in there and then walking back out. So the more we can eliminate friction, the more we can freely spend. And I think that's really dangerous if you're not sticking to a spending plan and actually have um, knowledge of that. But I'm pretty agnostic on this stuff. I'm really pessimistic when it comes to, when I hear like cryptocurrency, I get really pessimistic when it, I, I think immediately I'm biased that people are thinking we're going to replace the dollar with Bitcoin or something along those lines. 
Um, I, you know, Ray Dalio is a really famous guy and he wrote this whole thing about the new coming third, third world order. China's going to take over all this other stuff. Everybody is looking for a reason to depeg from the U S dollar. I'm really not that person. I think I'm very, well, I know I'm optimistic about the dollar, but as far as digital rights and assets, that's where the blockchain comes in is really powerful. It's already being used. It's not even like a use case. It's actually being used. And so I think that's really powerful, but as it relates to personal finance, um, it just, it just reminds me of like how anybody will buy a gadget of any sort, like a P90X or a Thymaster or Tybo back in the day, anything to not run or eat less. Cause that's ultimately what will get you there the fastest, but it's like, mm, that's too hard. I'm going to push the easy button that Staples gave me and I'm going to do anything of other gadgets. So that's just what I think of. I just become that's, but at least my bias is known, I suppose. So you have shared a lot of the concepts that you've included in your books today and generally. Is there something as somebody's reading the book or just in general that might be a lesser known aspect that listeners might find intriguing? Yeah, um, very personal. I mean, the whole book is personal, but very personal to me and, and my wife especially because she was like kicking and screaming going into a budget or a spending plan. She was like, oh my gosh, this is terrible. And then it came to like, we're going to set aside, I think at the time, like $100 to be able to go out to eat or something for per month. And she was like, that's it, 100 And I was like, yeah. And of course, you know, it's the 10th of the month and the 100 has gone. And here comes the 14th of the month and friends are like, let's go out to get drinks. And I'm like, no, sorry, we can't. And she is just like turning red as I say it. And they all kind of stop and look at me. And I'm like, look, if you want to bring a six pack over to our house, you're welcome. We've got some too. Or if you don't have it, we got drinks we can make you. But it's not important to us or we would put it over our budget. We didn't know. Plan it for next month. I'll be able to do it. And when I said that and came out that way, there's like four couples. And everybody kind of put their head down. They're like, yeah, we need to really start slowing down on this stuff. And what was really shocking was all of a sudden the night turned into how do we do this budgeting thing? And I find out everybody but us has credit card debt. And so it was this thing that like once I explained it, First of all, we all grew closer as couples. We all became more intimate in that way because we all like learned what our money scripts are that, you know, some people grew up where their parents never talked about money. Some people were like, it's very scarce, like me. It was very, very scarce when I was growing up. It's something to be feared almost. And, and then there was others that just got like, you know, spoiled. Um, and so you had everything in between and we just became really closer just by having those kinds of conversations. And then it became really fun because it was like, Hey, and it, it jokes on me, but it'd be like, Hey, we got to like plan this out. Cause Mitch won't come if, you know, if we don't have it in the budget for next month and then everybody kind of giggle, but it was like a way of keeping people accountable and they were doing it themselves to themselves. And so I thought that was really fun. But it's helped us because now we're able to say this is why we go to these European vacations and we live in this nice house is because we haven't had credit card debt in 17 years. And so it's just a really eye-opening experience. So there's writing a book in hope of helping a lot of people and then there's helping one, making a difference one person at a time all you can do. by the relationship in your personal life. And I think both are great because I'll say every great movement started with one person right. somewhere. Any last thoughts today? No, I'm really uh, honored, first of all, um, that, you've, that you've brought me in um, and honored to the people that have actually sat here and listened through the whole episode. So thank you for that. Uh, if I can help anybody, I'm really easy to find. Google me and I'm easy to find. 
And yeah, we'll include that information when we post the episode okay. and it'll be on the various websites and places that we post the episode. So as we reach the end today, I want to thank our sponsors, Interactive Legal, Foster Group, Veterans Victory, and Carson Private Client. That's all for now. Thanks for listening to today's episode and stay tuned for our weekly releases. Vandenack Weaver Legal Visionaries is made available by the firm and its attorneys for educational purposes and to provide general information, not to provide specific legal advice. Use of the Vandenack Weaver Legal Visionaries podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship between you and the firm or any of its attorneys. The Vandenack Weaver Legal Visionaries podcast should not be used as a substitute for competent legal advice, and you should contact an attorney in your state about any legal needs or questions you may have. A Huda Media Production.